Hi, it's Diane. On my mind, Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel is a name that may be familiar to those who followed the debate over healthcare in America. A renowned oncologist and policy expert, Emanuel helped design Obamacare and more recently advised President Biden on his approach to fighting COVID. In other words, Emanuel is someone who understands the promise of medicine and how it can both save lives and improve quality of living. That's why it came as a shock to many when he published a piece in The Atlantic back in 2014 stating he would decline medical treatment after age 75. He explained that here in the U.S., we chase longevity without asking whether those extra years are worth it. I invited Dr. Emanuel to revisit his essay and also to debate a topic close to my heart, medical aid in dying. Before we begin talking about your essay, I'm interested in the president's decision to end the coronavirus emergency declarations on May the 11th. What's your reaction to that? Well, I think it's kind of inevitable. And that's because I think the country uh, has moved on. Even if the pandemic hasn't moved on, we still have more than 500 people a day dying in America. Uh, to remind your listeners, that makes COVID the number three or four cause of death. There's heart disease at about 700,000, cancer at about 600,000, and then accidents at COVID, just around 200,000. Um, that's not over. There's still many problems we have. For example, we don't have any more monoclonal antibodies uh, that yeah. are useful, especially for immunocompromised people. We need more vaccines that are more updated. Uh, we need to prepare for the next pandemic. I'm not sure we're past this in the real sense. I am sure psychologically the country is past it. And I think the president is bowing to that. As every politician knows, you can be ahead of the people a little bit, but you can't be ahead of the people a lot. And I think this COVID situation reflects that reality. And have you had COVID? I did have COVID. So I, I should make very, very clear. I've had four shots. I took the booster just before I started teaching this fall, last fall. Uh, when I teach, I have four HEPA filters going in the room. I require every student to wear an N95 respirator, which I provide free to them. I wear an N95 respirator. and. I survived all of that. There's one person I don't wear a mask for, and unfortunately, um, she uh, gave a lecture, took the mask off, and ended up getting COVID, um, and we both got it, uh, but had very, very, very mild cases. Good. As a matter of fact, hers was so mild that um, she just was routine, uh, routinely testing because her parents had just flown into town. And um, unfortunately, she didn't have symptoms that suggested she had COVID and, and tested positive. Did you take Paxlovid? 
when I got it, I did take Paxlovid because I was 65 years of age. And there some, was some evidence, it's not great evidence, but some evidence that it uh, uh, reduced your risk of long COVID. And since I am uh, very, very worried about long COVID, especially the uh, mental fog, the fatigue, um, I want to reduce my risks uh, for that outcome as much as possible. What about the bounce back that they talked about? I was reluctant to take Paxlovid even at my own age because of that bounce back, but was urged by my daughter, a physician, and my own physician to take it because I'm 86. They were right. Um, from what we can tell, the Paxlovid rebound is misnamed. It's not Paxlovid rebound. Uh, and it, it's not because you've taken Paxlovid that you end up with the rebound. It's the persistence of the virus um, that uh, Paxlovid is taking care of, but it comes back. So I actually uh, uh, went uh, uh, very faint lines for two days, uh, then nothing for two more days, and then recurrence for, I think, three additional days. So the sum total of my entire uh, period was something like 12 or 13 days. Interesting. Um, you're now 65. Correct. You wrote a piece in the Atlantic when you were 57. Tell me what that piece said. The piece said that um, I am healthy. I feel great. As a matter of fact, I had just completed climbing Mount Kilimanjaro with two of my nephews. But that when I get to 75, my attitude towards medical interventions is going to change. Until 75, I plan to take medical interventions aimed at prolonging my life, reducing my chance of dying. After 75, um, I will stop taking medical interventions where the purpose of the medical intervention is to prolong my life. I will not forego medical interventions. I'm not committing suicide if, for example, I broke my hip, I would get it replaced. If I had severe pain, I would take medication. I have been, for a long time, uh, people have been confused and misinterpreted me, mainly because of the title of the piece. They don't read the article. Um, uh, what I'm saying in that article is that as we age, as we get closer to 70 and 75, we change. Um, and once we get past a certain age, and it obviously will vary for people, but on average, once we get past 70, 75, we have physical declines, we have we slow down mentally, our processing speed gets slower. There are some things which get better, but in general, we slow down. Um, and the piece was, here's how I want to live at 75. It was a personal reflection, clearly labeled as a personal preference, something I've been thinking about for 40 years. Um, but the point of the piece was to urge people to think about themselves. How do they want to live as they age and their powers, physical and mental, decline? Suppose at age, let's say, 74, you were told you had prostate cancer, which could 
be helped by chemotherapy and radiation? What would you say? Uh, you're talking to an oncologist, and that's probably, I know it. that's probably not a great example because prostate cancer tends to be very slow growing. And I've been out there that I think we overtreat prostate cancer. But I let, agree let, with you. Let, let me be pretty clear, and a lot depends upon the details of the circumstance. Assuming I'm average, and that's an important assumption, assuming I'm average, and again, Few of us can be outliers like you, Diane, still working at 86. Most of us are going to be average. That's what average means. And under those conditions, at 74, assuming I'm still uh, going, I would probably take chemotherapy. But if it happened at 76 and say I needed to take uh, chemotherapy, I probably wouldn't. On the other hand, and I think this is very important. I've thought a lot about this. If I turn out to be like you, Diane, and I'm an outlier, I'm still working, I'm still mentally sharp um, and uh, uh, able to do what I can do to make the world a better place, then I very well might change my opinion. And by the way, I said that in the article. I know um, you did. I was very clear. And th again, this isn't policy. All through COVID, I've been arguing we've got to protect our elderly uh, and seniors, and on Medicare, I've been very clear, we need to provide benefits to people no matter what their age, if that's what they want. The point of my article is to make people think about what they want. Exactly. Not go blindly into the future and age and just let it come upon you. I sort of believe in the Socratic view. An examined life is what you want. And this is a critical element that we need to examine because it's going to happen to us. And we don't want it to happen to us. We want to be think about how we should live as we age. I want you to know that I totally agree with you. However, where I think you and I have a different uh, opinion is in the area of medical aid in dying which has now been approved by 10 states and the District of Columbia. I have been a champion of that. I have participated in the creation of a documentary on that subject and have written a book on that called When My Time Comes. I'm very familiar, Diane. You and I do disagree about that. Tell me why you believe that an individual who, like my husband of 54 years, with Parkinson's disease so advanced and at 84 years of age could no longer feed himself, could no longer stand on his own, could no longer walk, when he could not get medical aid in dying because he lived in Maryland, used BZ, voluntary stopping of eating and drinking. It took him 10 long days to die, whereas he had believed his doctor would provide 
medical aid in dying, which is so different from euthanasia. Uh, I don't think it's so different from euthanasia, first of all. Why not? Because the purpose is the same. Uh, it, it, and I don't know that who does the final thing makes a moral difference. So let me let me begin with uh, something I've said before is there may be cases, uh, and I've seen cases certainly as an oncologist, it's hard not to see cases where it may be justifiable to have medical assistance to end a life. Uh, I think they're probably more rare than most people think. Um, second, that is not a good justification for legalization. As the law says, I think, or the, the aphorism goes, you know, hard cases doesn't make good law. I think that's generally true. The second point I would make is that when you look at places, what, what's the point of legalizing euthanasia or assisted suicide? Uh, not euthanasia, two different things. The, the only thing that's different is who, who does the last act. If I, don't I do moral, the last act, it's yeah, I don't think from a moral euthanasia. Okay, I, I, I here again, you and I disagree. I, th I don't think from a moral standpoint, the difference is all that big. Anyway, my, my point is that a lot of people think this will make dying easier. It addresses a very tiny amount of the issue. Uh, in the Netherlands and Belgium, which have legalized euthanasia and assisted suicide for right. a long time, Less than 5% of deaths occur by this mechanism. In right. Oregon, it's less than 1%. You're right. not solving the problem we have in this country of bad end-of-life care and the fact that most people don't get the care they want by legalizing euthanasia-assisted suicide, which many people do. The second point I would make is that uh, the data we have is that most people think Yes, the reason we should legalize euthanasia-assisted suicide is because of people in pain. And then when you actually survey them, other reasons, um, less than a majority of people just uh, find them justifiable. It turns out that the vast majority, if not almost all of the people recently in Oregon, don't have pain. Right. Uh, they are depressed. They're feeling hopeless. And our usual approach to depression and hopelessness is not here's some pills you can you know commit suicide. Our usual approach is let's address that problem, and I think that's important. The last thing I would say is that a lot of people think um, euthanasia and assisted suicide are quick, painless, and flawless. Um, it is not necessarily true. We don't have good data on this because no one is willing to study it. And the one study done in the Netherlands show that they're not quick necessarily. They're not painless and they are not flawless. That people wake up, uh, people, uh, you can't find a vein uh, for many people. People vomit up the medication. So you describe 10 uh, uh, days of your husband uh, having to not eat. Um, that actually usually happens pretty quickly. And one should not think that the alternative is quick, painless, and flawless, because that's not the alternative. Every medical procedure has some rate of flaw and problem, and euthanasia-assisted suicide is no different. 
And as I said, we don't know the exact frequency in part because people have not studied this, which I think is a big problem. Um, so for yeah, those reasons, I'm not for legalization. Okay. I get that you're not for legalization. However, you talked about studies and the studies that have been done in Oregon, for example, tell us that there have been no problems. But I want to go back to a phrase you use. You said people should have the care they want. And what I am arguing for is exactly that. That is, if you want everything that medicine can provide and you want to keep on living, you should have it. If you want God to be the only decider, you should have it. And if you want medical aid in dying to end your life, because exactly as you've said, there is no joy in living. I have heard the medical director of Compassion and Choices give a lecture to medical students listing these six reasons that are most often given and lack of joy in life is number one. Pain is number six. So I agree with you that pain does not necessarily bring around that feeling, I wish to die. I, I don't know what lack of joy means. I will tell you that by and large, what the data show is uh, you've got psychological distress, um, more rigorously evaluated, not uh, anecdotally, uh, uh, using scales. You've got depression, you've got hopelessness, um, and you've got, I can't control things. Um, and I, again, that's our approach to those, to mental distress is not, here's a set of pills. Um, our approach, even for dying patients, when I treat oncology patients who have depression, the answer isn't, oh, I've got pills for you. The answer is, how do we deal with it? What can we do? What would be meaningful to you? Um, and I think that's a very different approach. Um, I would uh, finally say that one of the other reasons I am against legalization is we have seen in places the expansion of the justifications offered. Uh, initially, it's very core. Again, most of your listeners will think, oh, it's people in pain. And as you've correctly pointed out, that is false. Uh, it's always been false, actually, from the data. We've known that for 30 years. I produced the first study in the United States showing that. Um, then one of the things that happens is, okay, people in uh, the, the Netherlands and Belgium, we've now opened it up to people who have depression and other mental health issues. We've opened it up to children. I'm not, I'm not keen for that slippery slope. And people- Nor say, am I. I. I, one of the inevitable effects of legalization is to broaden that aperture. Um, and I'm not for that. Do you know who the number one patients are who are using medical aid in dying 
in both Oregon and California? It's uh, uh, upper middle class white people with cancer. That's the overwhelming proportion of people. What would you say to a person with ALS who has no, nothing to help that person live comfortably or in a way that is meaningful to that person? Again, I'm not, uh, I think you want to focus on a case. And part of the problem of legalization is it's not a case. It's for everyone who is facing it. And that's, I think, not the circumstance that we want. Hard cases do not make good laws. Again, and I am, I can imagine cases, as I said, I'm an oncologist, and imagine cases where it might be the appropriate intervention that is very different from legalization. And it's very different from my own personal preference, uh, which I make quite clear. And I am quite clear that it is my preference to have access to medical aid in dying, but I am not saying that that is what the whole world should have. I'm saying it's what I want, and I will use it when my time comes, but I'm not arguing that you should use it. So, but you are arguing that I should not use it. Look, in the case of seven of my view on 75, I'm not asking the medical system to do anything. I am simply saying what I am going to do and not ask someone else to do something. In your case, you want the system to help you. You want the system to provide you things. And the alternative, as you point out, is not eating. We end up losing consciousness very quickly in a matter of a few days. Uh, and uh, it's not filled with suffering as um, uh, you suggested. And so I am not for legalization uh, of this. Now a quick break. It's Diane. Join me for my next book club event on Wednesday, March 27th at 1 p.m. Eastern. I'll talk with Michael Crummy about his new novel, The Adversary. Find out more and register at dianereen.org slash book club. And we're back. Here's the rest of my conversation with Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel, Vice Provost for Global Initiatives and Co-Director of the Healthcare Transformation Institute at the University of Pennsylvania Perelman School of Medicine. How long are we living now? It depends who we are. Unfortunately, as uh, your uh, listeners may know, average life expectancy in the United States has gone down. 
Uh, we're now barely above 75 years. Um, and we seem to have divided into at least two groups, one of whom are living a long time and one of whom are living less and less. Uh, and as I like to say, I'm really concerned about the people who are living shorter and shorter because of drug abuse, because of accidents, which often can be tied to psychological distress and other factors in life. Um, those are the people I think are the biggest tragedy because they are dying often in the prime of life well before they've had a chance to get to 75. I think people who are living a good life like you into 86, frankly, you've had a good life. You've had a very, very full uh, life. And I think the country needs to be focused on people who aren't getting a full life, aren't getting the chance to live a full life and are having their time cut short. I assume you have a DNR. What does it say? Well, DNR is just a do not resuscitate order. It says pretty clearly, don't resuscitate me if I have a uh, cardiac arrest. I have a living will. My children and partner know very, very well my wishes. They, they've been inculcated in that since they've been in diapers, frankly. Um, so so uh, have mine. So have mine. So in your original piece, you seem to imply that if you're no longer able to live at your optimal level, then life would not be as worthwhile. I'm not, I'm not sure I said optimal level. Look, there's a lot, of, a lot of things that would still make life meaningful and fulfilling, uh, even if I'm not at my optimal level. What I don't want to have happen is that I, uh, my mental faculties decline and I'm not able to engage and be uh, uh, productive and helpful. Uh, that uh, my physical infirmities uh, make it such that I'm really focused on my body as opposed to being able to uh, focus on contributing things. Um, that th Those are the things that make me most worried, which is one of the reasons long COVID really scares me because of the impact on the ability to concentrate, the ability to engage mentally, the processing speed of the brain, as well as the fatigue uh, that can make you bedbound. I want you to know I agree with you 100% on that. But what for you then is a good and compassionate death? What oh, would that be for like? Me? Yeah. What would that be like? Well, a good and compassionate death would be one at home, one where I've been able to have the conversations with my children, my friends, that I've been able to uh, wrap things up in a way that makes it feel like life is complete and I can express my love and affection and uh, appreciation for the people who've made major contributions to my life and a uh, meaningful life. That's an ideal way. The exact last minute, I don't know that I... Um, I'm too worried about that. I, I, honestly, that just doesn't preoccupy me. What preoccupies me is the years before we, you know, look, I've been working on end of life care and trying to improve end of life care 
for almost 40 full years now. Um, I wrote my first paper in the mid 80s, I believe, and developed the first, you know, comprehensive living will advanced care directive document, you know, in, in the late 80s. We focus on that last few days, hospice and all of that. Really important, don't get me wrong. What I'm trying really to focus on is before that time, the aging process and figuring out that process. I think that's a period uh, we blank out, we don't focus on. I think for good reason, our models of it are not great. Often we have seen our parents or our grandparents decline um, and maybe not even in a dignified way. We've seen them uh, in nursing homes or assisted living facilities. Um, and what I want is for people to think about that time. I've thought a lot about that time for myself um, and what I want to have happen during that, that period and what I don't want to have happen. I'll tell you, Diane, maybe, maybe the best example I can give is uh, 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 about a year ago, I taught a course on Benjamin Franklin. Uh, after all, I'm at the University of Pennsylvania. He's our founder. He's also probably the most brilliant man ever born in the North American continent. He lived a model life as far as I can tell. You know, he continued to be active uh, past 80. He, he was uh, 81, 82 when the Constitutional Convention happened and he attended and weighed in in many ways, gave a brilliant speech at the conclusion of the Constitutional Convention saying, look, I don't fully endorse everything in this Constitution, but we all have to compromise and we all should unanimously endorse the Constitution. He wrote his last article, a searing, sarcastic takedown of slave owners' justifications for slavery uh, just three weeks before he died. Uh, he was constantly curious, constantly engaged, constantly doing the things he could do right up to the last few days of his life. That's a model. That's what I would like my end of life to be. And he was 84 uh, when he died. One last question, and that is in regard to Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's is a growing national issue, not only for the elderly, but for the families, for the caregivers, for everyone involved. And yet the government does not seem to have put as much money as it could to find what is causing Alzheimer's at younger and younger ages. If you had a wand to wave regarding Alzheimer's, what would you do? Uh, well, for, first of all, I don't know that the actual frequency, and, and again, I'm not saying you're wrong, but I don't know that the actual frequency at younger ages uh, is a real phenomena as opposed to an epiphenomenon. We're testing more, we're seeing more. Um, we do know that there's mm -hmm. a, Alzheimer's, uh, that some people are prone uh, because of genetics to Alzheimer's at a younger age. Per population, I don't know that it's gone up. And again, I'm not disagreeing. I just don't. Okay. Um, uh, we do know that 
basically there's a very low level of Alzheimer's pre-75 and then after 75, it goes up very, very steeply such that by 80, uh, you have a quarter to a third of people have the signs of dementia. And frankly, I think it is scary. There is a huge amount of research that has been going on. We've tested a number of drugs with a model of uh, trying to interfere with the tangles. And the problem is they've all failed. We now have one drug that appears to slow the cognitive decline, although it doesn't reverse it. And we'll see if that's uh, how real that is and whether it can be repeated. Uh, I am not an expert in Alzheimer's. I think it is a very scary situation for people. It scares me. Your body works well, but your mind doesn't. Um, do. It's, a, I think, a enormously scary phenomena. Sure. We do know that there are some things like exercise and diet that you can do to reduce your risk or delay its onset, but it's, uh, it, it is a serious problem, as is the whole aging situation for health systems and society going forward. Every society, not just the United States, is aging uh, with more old people, um, and our mechanisms for managing that are uh, pretty antiquated. We really haven't wrestled with the problem. And let me say, from my study of other countries, all countries are in the same boat. Um, we, we, they haven't wrestled with the problem uh, well. I will say, you know, let me return to one of my comments. I think Alzheimer's is serious and seriously scary. It's also serious and seriously scary to have a large swath of the American population not make it to old age. Uh, because they're dying young, uh, uh, either from self-inflicted, you know, violence, accidents, uh, substance abuse. And, and I think there are many things we need to have attended to in our society. And, you know, if I could wave a magic wand, my magic wand would be, I want everyone to live to 75 uh, and live well and have a meaningful life. And that people over 75 uh, get the kind of care that they need. Are you going to continue to go to doctors after 75? As I said, you know, depending upon what uh, I have, you know, if I, you know, break, break bones, yeah. have some, some substantial pain, have uh, problems which are interrupting my ability to lead a life, yes. I, I mean, uh, that is, uh, that's something that I will address. What about a flu shot? Uh, no, I'm not doing a flu shot after 75. How come? Diane, let me go back to the, let, let me go back to the, uh, to the point. If I'm average, that's what I'll do. If I'm uh, like you, uh, an outlier and still functioning, still working, you know, then I will re-examine uh -huh. uh, and and do things. Um, you know, I, I uh, as I put it in my article, uh, on average, 75 is a pretty important inflection point for average people. Most of us are average by definition. We all like to think we're extraordinary. We all like to think we're outliers. That by definition can't be true. What I want is for people to think through what they want as they age 
And as they uh, have uh, the inevitable physical and mental infirmities that accompany aging. Um, and I'm pretty clear if I'm average, uh, I am not going to uh, spend my time prolonging my life. Dr. Emanuel, thank you so much. It was great pleasure and great fun talking with you. It was my honor, Diane, to be on your show. Thank you. And uh, I hope we've cleared up at least some confusions and misinterpretations of my own personal philosophy. And I hope that your listeners develop their own personal philosophy of aging and what they'll do and not do. That is my entire point, is to have people live an examined life and have their life be examined as they age into their 70s and 80s. Thank you. Thank you. That was Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel, Vice Provost for Global Initiatives and Co-Director of the Healthcare Transformation Institute at the University of Pennsylvania Perelman School of Medicine. His latest book is titled, Which Country Has the World's Best Healthcare? And that's all for today. We welcome your feedback and suggestions. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter or send us an email via our podcast at wamu.org. Our theme music is composed by Jim Brunberg and Ben Landsberg of Wonderly. The show is produced by Allison Brody. Our engineer today is Kellen Quigley. Thanks for listening all. See you next week. I'm Diane Ream.